0: Two, three. Hi, I'm Gary David, and I'm Adam Gamwell. Welcome to Experience by Design, the podcast where we explore experience designs of all kinds.
1: Now, what does chips and salsa, meow, wolf? and Bernie Man all have in common.
0: Hmm.
1: On the one hand, it might not seem like much. On the other hand, what they all share is that they're part of what our guests call the experiential palette. Now, when speaking of a palette, we can think of a palette as one's taste. Or we might think about a palette as something an artist uses to bring an image to life on, on a canvas. Both a palette and a palette involve trying to connect with a person's experiential aptitude to take in and appreciate what is being created for that person. If you have salsa that's too spicy, as my wife often does because I like spicy salsa and she does not, no matter how good that salsa might taste, that's going to be overpowered by how hot it is. And if a person doesn't have a spicy aptitude, they're not going to enjoy it. Likewise, if you have an artist image that is too abstract or too experimental the viewer might not be able to connect with what the artist is trying to communicate. It's very possible for those of us who understand a little bit about art, you can go way beyond what the audience is able to take in.
0: Indeed. And so our guest today is Anthony Rocco. He's an experienced artist and an architect of curiosity. So he helps us break down these ideas around what a palette is an experiential palette and basically how we use this to make sense of our lives, our worlds, what kind of art we're seeing. Will our salsa taste good? We have to consider all these pieces. Now, inspired by his education in cinema and directing, from the Latitude Society to Burning Man to creating his own transformative leadership experiences for corporate clients, Anthony has a palette of many colors and tastes that he draws from. In today's episode, Anthony helps us unpack the underlying framework for what makes experience design work or when it doesn't. For example, where does the value of an experience design actually lie? He helps us understand that as designers, it's actually our responsibility to design for the whole experience, not just the perception of it. It's not just if you think it's spicy. It matters what flavors, ingredients, the whole package, what kind of chips you dip into that, in that salsa. We're going to run with this metaphor as far, as far as we can go. As
1: far as we can go. Yep. As far as we can go.
0: As far as we can go. As well, Anthony helps us understand that uh, you know the idea of mixing curiosity and design together is really about bringing stakeholders into the here and now. It's almost a form of mindfulness where this helps us understand these often ignored and overlooked fabrics of social life of how and why we do what we do. Let's just ask deeper questions and rethink how we conceptualize and construct and even frame our experiences. So we rethink this from the ground up. This is a exciting and philosophical conversation that gets both into the roots of design as well as how we can make the world just a bit more of a human place. So we hope you enjoy and let's get to it. Mm
1: Yeah, it's funny you mentioned killing off in early education. My daughter just had MCAS today. And so mm-hmm. Anthony MCAS is like the standardized testing that they do here for students of various grades to determine mm-hmm. whether or not that they've actually learned anything. And so my da- I said to my daughter, you know, so what goes on today? She's like, well, we have three hours or maybe six hours to do this mm-hmm. test. It won't take me that long, but you can do with the rest of your time. I don't know. Just read a book. Yeah. Maybe the most important thing she got out today was just reading the book and not doing the MCAS.
0: Yeah. <laughs> Sounds right. Sounds right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, there's so
2: much with standardized testing, right? Such a complicated measurement system.
1: Is it a measurement system? I mean, that's, that's, that's well, a good place to start. Yeah.
2: I mean, it's <sighs> usually... Uh, my understanding of standardized tests as, as a product of American public school <laughs> was that uh, at the time that I was going through the public school system, that standardized tests were used to allocate funds um, and all sorts of weird things. And there's a lot of implications with um, socioeconomic and racial things and and the way standardized tests don't really uh, aren't designed with those considerations in place.
1: Right. Yeah. Well, I think he's as a user or victim of the, of the system that puts you in a good position to uh, expound on it in a relatively informed way, which might not be informed, but it's informed as anybody else sure. who knows about this, this yeah. kind of stuff. So I appreciate that perspective. And I, you know, I asked about the metric thing and, you know, just kind mm-hmm. of riffing into this, this conversation yeah. we want to have. You know, as I said, I was chatting with a friend of mine who specializes in CX metrics last night, and it's this question about how do we measure, you know, the perception of an experience versus the interaction of people with a thing that actually creates an experience. And we were kind of the dialoguing around, you know, not which is more important, but you know, kind of which is more important, right? So much work is mm-hmm. on perception of it's only with the perception you had of it, and not as much attention on the actual thing that what that happened that occurred right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and i don't, you know i'm not asking you for the answer unless you have the answer do you have the answer for that
2: um the there is no answer <laughs> well it's then the we answer. Go. <laughs> uh <laughs> that's always that's always <laughs> well, that, often the that's answer.
1: disappointing i was hoping but you had my, answer.
2: <laughs> i know but that's that's the that's the disappointing real answer uh the my my bias is that it's very easy to Uh, want the perception to be more valuable than the experience, because in the end, it is often the thing that we are actually left with. For myself, if I go on a trip, the experience is ephemeral, it disappears. What I have is maybe some physical takeaways, exit through the gift shop. But what I really have is a sense of what I remember from that time. And What's really interesting is uh, the way a memory can be (laughs) really not accurate. Uh, (laughs) You know, you can have all these like really, really crummy, crummy experiences and have this like one thing that touches you or moves you or changes you in, let's say a week's time. You know, you have one hour that's like just the most magical thing. You were like in this magical place and it transformed your life. So you'll always remember that trip as being really important, even though 99.9% of the trip was really not fun. <laughs> really the experience was not enjoyable uh, on any level. So that sort of thing, but that doesn't excuse us as designers or experienced designers or in whatever way to then just say, well, well we'll only design for the memory of the thing
1: right. uh, mm-hmm.
2: because then that sort of shoves off responsibility of what it is to actually show up in the moment along, along the way. Um, And even if I'm a big believer, that even if memory isn't there, that there's a subtler impression made and you won't necessarily be able to recall it in the way that we measure memory. You won't be able to articulate it in a cognitive way or an emotional way, but there's an impression made on you. And and you can track that in certain customer experiences, high touch things where you might not be able to articulate what it was about the thing. I think fine dining is oftentimes used as an, as an, example of this, but it's like the, the subtlety of the way that a piece of flatware feels in your hand, you most people, their experiential palette is not going to be able to track that that made a difference, but it leaves a very subtle impression. Mm-hmm. And if enough, enough of those add up, then people will be left with an impression that's very valuable, but maybe not be able to recall it. End mm-hmm. of pontification.
0: No, I like the pontification. <laughs> Mic drop. Yeah, right. Um,
2: well,
1: thank, actually,
0: thanks, for, thanks for joining us
1: today. That's all yeah. we have.
0: No, sure. <laughs> <laughs> no actually, I, I really, I'm really, i actually really curious. I'd love to hear you unpack a little bit about this idea of sure. the experiential palette <laughs> um, sure. and like, how might we cultivate... People too. I love this, that idea. It's like, you know, thinking, I'm thinking of like a wine sommelier. Like I can taste yeah, notes of absolutely. tobacco, but like, how do we, how do we develop that experiential palette?
2: Absolutely. Um, I'm going to put my cat out for a second and then answer. <laughs> <laughs> the this is experience is in doing inter- interviews at home.
0: Um, interviews.
2: Yeah. it's a little, little 13 year old tuxedo cat. Aww,
0: um,
2: experiential palette. So everyone has different, ways of describing this because in the same way that to your point about uh, taste palette or sight palette uh words are very influential in terms of how we actually experience that thing and the, the primary example i like to give is when you're working with uh emotions or colors the more words you have the the greater range of perspective so like I believe it's uh, in Russian, and you're the anthropologist, so you'll be able to answer this better than I can. I believe in Russian, they have like multiple words for the color blue um, Mm -hmm. in ways that define blue in ways that we or I as an English native speaker don't see blue. Because I don't have those words for that uh, subtle discernment of differentiation. Uh, Like just the hearing the different notes between the thing. So, so words are very helpful in creating that system. And so everyone has a, has a different way of sort of doing that. The, for me, you sort of can start our, where I start is really with the basic senses um, to try to call people into becoming aware of how those are different notes to play along the way. Um, And this can happen anywhere, right? So even if your event or experience or customer engagement is outside, uh, you can curate it in a certain way to have certain notes. Um, You know, what is the quality of light? What is the quality of smell? What is the quality of sound? Um, And then when you're designing internal interior spaces, um, you're sort of thinking of that same flow. What is the texture of light? How is it pulling someone in a certain way? In what ways is the sound different in a certain room? Is it softer? Is it louder? Is it going to be able to hold more voices? Um, So that's also like an architectural way of sort of thinking about how you're designing um, experience. So there's a lot of disciplines that intersect, but I think um, maybe to pull it back to your question, Adam, there's also the responsibility of the experiencer. And I think that is a a partnership between both individuals being curious to expand that palette and some of us that are more experienced in understanding a palette or the way that we've developed our sense of palette, which I'd be curious to hear about your, your the two of you sort of palette, um, how we share that, right? Because you can go take uh, a class that's going to teach you to how to understand the notes of this wine, you know, or, or whatever the, whatever the thing is, which, uh, depends on how interested you are. Are you going to be able to like stick with it long enough to get those, uh, skills? Because when it comes to expanding that palette, it takes time. It takes training. It takes the, the amount of repetitions to discern that difference uh, learning music a- any, any tactile skill uh, it's not just a, a cognitive, you replace an idea and all of a sudden now you can think about the thing differently. It's going to take multiple times that you're experiencing the thing be- before your body-mind kind of integration of those two things begins to differentiate difference in, in that way. So I'll kind of pause there and see if there's a piece you want to pull on.
0: Yeah, um, all of it, no. <laughs> uh, <laughs> yeah, I, I, totally. You know but i think that they're, they're actually now that that is that's fascinating and i appreciate that that unpacking of that and it's like a, one thing that strikes me there is uh you know one i like this idea that it's it's the responsibility of the experiencer to uh i don't know if we might say grow in consciousness of of yeah. know, that which is that they're experiencing um yeah. and so i think uh you know I I want to I want to kind of dig further than that but I also I also want to juxtapose it in a future question at some point about yeah. how do we how do we balance that with the designer right that is also yeah. curating the space or the experience um that is intentionally to your point adding blue light to give a, a feeling of a tone in a space you know um and so how do we balance that responsibility both as experience or um against or with or in conversation with the designer yeah
2: So um, the, so as something that we maybe talked about before uh, Gary is that um, I'm trained and I studied cinema filmmaking. So a lot of my sort of creative analogies kind of emerge from that space. And when you look and you study the language of cinema over the last hundred years, uh, there was a dialogue that happened between audiences and filmmakers. And what what evolved was a grammar and a syntax. And so, you know, the first short film of a train coming at the camera and people running out of the theater, not understanding what that was, is you throwing a bunch of experience at someone and going like, I have no idea how to kind of actually process this. And slowly over time, the grammar evolved to the point where we understand a shot and a reverse shot. I see a shot of someone talking. I see the next person talking. I understand that they're talking to each other, even the way in which they're facing on the frame and the way that it flips. So there's a, there's a conversation that will happen where the designers are going to, you know, and we can look at this through a HCD lens or something like that, doing the due diligence and the research to understand how people are experiencing it, what they how they're processing it, and then sort of using that to then refine the grammar or the syntax as it sort of continues to evolve. Um, and we'll see that more and more. And, and even in the time in which I've been in this field, I've seen that grow immensely in terms of bringing in older disciplines uh, like LARP or like customer experience design and the the weaving of some of their terms and techniques and methodologies and all that sort of stuff to kind of get blended together. So there is a, there is a dual responsibility. And, and for me as a designer or creator, I think part of it is um, when you see a film or you see a piece that's on the fringe of some new technique, It also is doing a really good job if it's breaking through that it's teaching you how to experience it. Um, If it's too on the fringe, then it's kind of only a cult favorite thing and only the people who are like super deep in that world can actually appreciate it. But um, the way in which you can pause at certain moments and invite people to just notice what they're experiencing Or, or kind of train them in a little bit of a way to like, appreciate the thing and and it's and it's very subtle. It's the same way that if I went to a fine dinner, and, you know, really good food and really good drink was was set on the table, we could very quickly dive into a really beautiful conversation, even like the conversation we're having right now, and just kind of eat everything and we would know it was really good. But if there was the chef there and there was, you know, someone who was like from the farm and they had us pause after each dish with a little bit of conversation and just like told us a little bit about it and asked, what do you notice? And even Mm -hmm. if my palate isn't super expanded, I'm going to be able to stop and pause and kind of like check in. So in terms of those sorts of points, depending upon a customer experience or any type of immersive entertainment experience, um, the more that you can kind of. Create that relation of feedback that's not just a user feedback survey at the end, where they're, to your point, just getting the memory of the thing, but in the moment, tracking the experience, and maybe it's uh, it's more subtle to measure that in some way that they don't have to, uh, you know, fill out. I'm, you know, I'm not a researcher at, at, by trade, but I think there's we we're talking about subtle ways of kind of right. measuring or tracking that stuff mm-hmm. to develop it further.
1: It, this, this reminds me of salsa. Um, mm. Food or the dance? Uh, the food. Uh, and my wife mm-hmm. and my kids not liking spicy salsa.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And I like spicy salsa. And if I give them spicy salsa to expand their p- palate, I'm going to blow the doors off their palate. That's right. <laughs> and they're going to be really angry with me, which I admit is not an unusual phenomenon, so it wouldn't be necessarily notable in any kind of particular way. But nevertheless unwelcome, right? They're gonna be like, this is, and I've done this. I'm like, oh, it's not very spicy. And then they have it. They're like, this is really spicy. And I'm like, it's not that spicy. And so you know, there's this point of you know, bringing people along. And it makes me think about things like Burning Man or the Latitude Society or any of these other things where, or Meow Wolf or these kinds of immersive experiences, you can easily blow the doors off people who aren't ready yes. for the thing. But then again, it raises the question, Are is that are they going to the intend to target our audience in the first place? And are they just, you know, is it just not for them? Or do we even think about things not being for certain people? Or, or do we think about it, you know, this, these experiences could be everybody if they were properly brought along at an appropriate pace to actually be there to to meet them, to have that dialogue. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
2: So the, I think, the 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 sorry, go, no, go
0: ahead jump in. No, I'm not to to add with that, too, just um, I think things like, you know, I don't know, like both going around the spectrum from from salsa to Meow Wolf is interesting, um, just because it is like a, um, a fringe experience, we might say, right? So I, I like the way that, that you said that, Anthony, in terms of it has to be fringe enough to catch your attention, I think is maybe one way to say that, too. Um, and then, but not so fringe that you're like, I don't even know what to do with this. Um, but it's interesting, I guess, like, could that be trained backwards to liking spicy salsa, <laughs> you know, to like a very simple example, could, could it be go backwards? I wonder,
2: mm-hmm, mm-hmm. um, well, some of it happens like really subtly. And, um, I think the other key component here is we're kind of talking at, at high levels, which is I, as an individual can sort of affect certain things in in the scope of a project. I'm working on a project for 12 weeks or six months or a year. And then there's this sort of higher level timeline of how experience design is evolving as a discipline, as a methodology, as whatever we want to kind of call it. Um, And we see those sorts of generational changes in a different way that no one person or one company or one thing is going to necessarily train, but it's this more organic, Thing and, and for me, I think um, something my team was talking about earlier this week was the subtlety of how a design choice, like using a fingerprint to unlock a phone, has subtly shifted this thing that is usually identified with, like, the only time that I'm getting my fingerprinted is for, like, I'm taken in to get booked because right. I've been arrested or I'm I'm, you know, having to do it for some sort of like high level government document, like a passport. And now I just casually do it however many times a day. And the quickness at which a generation that grows up with that will never know the previous uh, context of what mm-hmm. that artifact kind of was valued or represented just goes away in an instant. And so you can kind of look at the way in which We have trained a generation in terms of I'm still of the generation that grew up without a cell phone and without internet in certain ways. And so those sort of higher level, I I think that to your point, Adam, how do we as um, holders of that uh, bridge that gap? Because to the point that I often say, I kind of often tell the story is when I studied film, I was the last or maybe the second to last class that we shot on celluloid and we cut with a razor blade. There were there was no undo button. Um, You had to learn how to plan everything analog, shoot analog, edit analog, project analog. And so the design thinking brain that is developed when you have analog tools is a very different, the sharpness of the way in which I had to kind of plan things is very different than with undo. Now, undo is a magical—it's a magical wand that I can then use. But it—it it, um, there's there's this kind of connecting of those analog and digital worlds, and I think there's a really beautiful opportunity for designers as we're mentoring and and you know doing this sort of changing into future generations of how do we, even if we're not helping the customer experience or expand their palette. I think in the growing of you know, budding designers in any discipline, there's going to be a showing them the value of understanding analog beauty that isn't just digital. And, and that there's a learning process also. I learn a lot about the beauties of what digital can do. And, and those who are in a slightly different generation than me show me, and I remain open to learning from them. And so I think there's a reciprocal process there in growth.
0: It's It's one of those pieces that, um, I'm going to sound cliche as an anthropologist, but, you know, culture is is such an important and like often invisible framework of which how we interpret what's happening in the world. And so I really appreciated your example before about, I, I don't know the answer of how many languages or words of blue they have in Russian, but the anecdote I would I, I would borrow their copy is basically that similarly um, um, in the Inuit language, they have something like over hundred words for snow. Right. right. Yeah. And how do we understand that? And so they have on one level a much higher, you know, depth of field of experience, right. In terms of when it, when it comes to snow and, you know, it's like the snow that slushes under your foot and melts just a little bit, you know, versus the ice that'll crack and whatever it is, you know, so, um, and that's such an important piece actually, uh, when we're contemplating the intergenerational communication too, because the other thing about culture is that it's intergenerational. It's passed on, um, you know, from shared and both Gary, Gary is a professor and I I taught design for a number of years as well. And that's always one of these interesting spaces where it's it's uh, there is a stupidly simple example that there's such a difference of having students work on a design uh, with cardboard. Versus doing something in Photoshop, right? And there is a uh, the undo button is actually a really interesting cultural artifact to think about as as this thing that, on one level, freed up us to play more, but at the same time, it also limits us from playing because now we have a deluge of, well, I could just redo it, and I think that's like a really interesting piece to contemplate. I don't know, so so Gary too, like, have you seen? I don't know how do you how do you deal with that too in terms of as as the next generation is trying to make sense of this, like. How do we keep them analog without them being like, hey, grandpa, like, <laughs> put away, put away the cardboard. Yeah.
1: Well, it was, it was yeah. well, the, one of the things I used to talk about with like the old timers, right? When I was doing my dissertation and now I'm one of the old timers kind of is, uh, you know, it used to be a lot easier to do a dissertation because if you had to make a change, that meant you had to retype everything that came after the change. <laughs> now you have like four committee members. I'll say, well, just, you know, just, just, just make all these changes. Cause it's just in, you know, word or back then word perfect 5.1. Um, mm-hmm. or lotus notes. And, cool. and and you have like the 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 volume of work has increased to the extent that um, it becomes not labor saving but labor multiplying. And I will mm-hmm. also say though, it's you know, I think one of the points that you know Anthony was talking about with content creators today, it's so easy to shoot oneself doing something and to put it out there for mass consumption, but that does not mean everybody should. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. You know, but it also doesn't mean we don't want people to not be able to. Mm-hmm. And so it's, it's, you don't want to use this undemocratic viewpoint of like, nah, you, you know, you're not a filmmaker. You shouldn't be able to put that yourself out on TikTok. But at the same time, a lot of people should not be able to put themselves out on TikTok. Or right? I mean, because like, it's just like producing stuff, but who's to say, who's to judge, but it does, you know, making people do it in the old way, you know, the old ways. Mm-hmm forces them to be conscientious, to think about the process through which that thing happens. And that, you you know, it's like when my, one of my stats professors used to make us do stats, you know, longhand. We're like, why do we need to know how to, why we, why are we doing this? It's, we can just do it on the computer, even back then. We can just do it on the computer because you got to know how it works. And we're like, oh, you got to know how the thing actually functions internally before you can know what it actually means as a product Mm -hmm. and I don't know if any of those examples kind of get at this, but there is this notion of maintaining a connection to the thoughtfulness through which these things can be produced. The five senses that you referred to Anthony, right? The deliberate nature in which we're considering things before we do them in relation to not only what we're trying to say, but how they'll be heard before just kind of spewing it out there and seeing what happens. Mm -hmm. Mm Yeah.
2: No, it's a beautiful um, the the piece that kind of struck me that I want to go back to because I I was unexpected that we we're going to go to these kind of higher levels but I do enjoy kind of dancing in in this space because I'm really uh, a huge I I am fascinated with American cultures like weird. Inability to integrate cross generations, um, yeah. and we and we're at a pivotal moment right now where we're talking about racial, gender, and multiple other uh, borders and and uh, and sort of segregation of of things. And I think that gener- generation and age is a really subtle and invisible one. And I had an experience a few years ago. Where I was invited to, I mean, there's a much more magical story that I don't have time to fully go into, but it's pretty lovely. But basically, I got invited to a dinner party thrown by uh, a couple in their 70s who have been married for 40 years, are both fascinating, just humans. One was a, an astrophysicist, you know, sort of working for the government uh, post Manhattan Project. Other wow. one is involved in antiquarian papers and all sorts of like beautiful ephemera and things. Just fascinating humans. And they collected a dinner party where there was, there was maybe 10 of us and almost every single generation was represented. Um, everyone from teenagers all the way to the seventies. And they were, none of them were family. Um, they were all, all, some were artists, some were other professionals. We were all just kind of a, a random, and they do these dinners constantly. And what we learned was that they really love learning from a multi-generational conversation because you there's always more to learn. And, and it really inspired me that someone in their 70s can be looking at someone in a very different way than the way that I experienced elderhood as a teenager when oftentimes people weren't listening to me right. when I would say like, this stuff's messed up (laughs) (laughs) and, and not actually like listen to me or, or things like that. And actually just like take time, listen, hear the perspective, also share my story, share my wisdom and that sort of stuff. And I was like, there's not been many times other than maybe family context where I'm sitting with multiple generations that are all actually wanting to have a, a shared dialogue.
1: I, one of the things I just, I just was talking about this last time with this friend of mine, cause she was asking me, you know, like, what's this Twitch thing? Like, what do you get out of it? Like why bother yeah. doing it? And I said, it's the only place I've seen where intergenerational interaction happens with regularity. Yeah. And it's been fascinating to see this because I've, when I stream, sometimes I have 18-year-olds up until people that are my age or older, 60-year-olds. I've been on other streams just watching the same kind of thing. And you, you get a very similar dynamic, not as necessarily rich per se as your dinner party, but you do get this sharing of experiences and perspectives in this kind of almost neutral landscape where no one's claiming that one is privileged over the other. And I, I was trying to think of what spaces in contemporary life do we have available to us for this to happen, and I really couldn't think of any, other than now your dinner parties. So now I have another example. <laughs> so other than doing that, you know, and going on Twitch, right. I'm like, well, where, where, like, where do we, where do we talk across generations, and how do we think about how we bring those generational lenses to the experiences that we're having and then the perceptions we have around those interactions and those touchpoint moments that then create these memories.
0: That's a, that's a solid question. As Anthony, I, I, would, I would kind of pitch that to you and, and think about, you know, in, in, do you have any examples or any, any kind of ruminations even of um, how do you consider age when you're working on a project or like, have there been any projects you've worked on that age has been an explicit uh, condition to think through? Um, in terms of how we put together experience, uh,
2: that's really interesting. Um, I don't know that it's ever been an explicit thing. Um, I think it's a subtle it's a subtle thing that I think about it any at any stage when I'm kind of thinking about how do I make anything more diverse than sort of the white male heteronormative sort of thing and, and and how am I trying to create a a diversity in the in the experience or the culture of the people who are there, both, both as designers as well as as well as participants, because I think both both sides are are equally as important. But um, I think it I think it's um, only now kind of bubbling up to the surface of being like a a very kind of considered thing. Um, it's been something that well I'll reflect on it this way. I would say that I had a natural gravitation towards people who were older than me from a very young age. Um, Although I had friends that were my age, I often was the kid who was hanging out with people 10, sometimes 20 years older. So when I got out of college, I through, through my Burning Man camp, Um, ended up in San Francisco and ended up being the youngest person in that community. You know, I was 24, 25, and these were all old time burners who had been around since the, since the start of it, um, especially in San Francisco. Some of the people were some of the, some of the original people there. And so these were people 10, 20, 30 years, my sort of, you know, age gap. And, and I think it's been just a natural place that I found myself. Um, So as I sort of move (laughs) into that, you know, as my friend would say, the strangest thing about aging is that it happens to you, you know, as everyone experiences the uh, harsh reality that is, oh, it'll never happen to me. Or I remember that moment to speak of a, a really particular experiential moment that everyone goes through and people who haven't gone through it will have it. And they're hearing me going like, Oh, it'll never happen to me. And then people who have had it and be like, Oh, I've already had that six or seven more right. times than you. But I was, um, I was at a friend's and their kid was, this is a few years ago. Um, and their kid was watching something on a tablet and I wanted to chit chat with the kid. Let's say they were like eight or nine. And I was like, yeah, what, what shows are you into? And like, trying to like connect on a kid level, like, what are you interested in? And the kid was telling me all about, you know, this really cool show. And it's got this character and blah, blah, blah. I And I asked a question. And my question was, so what time is it on? And I was like, wow, that was such a stupid question. But I was like, I was channeling my, yeah, I was channeling my my inner kid. And I was like, well, when I was a kid, it was like after school. But then the special ones were on Saturday morning. Mm -hmm. And the kid looked at me with a blank face. Like, what are you talking about? (laughs) Like, I have no so, context for your question. I was like, oh, I mean, when do they release new episodes? He's like, oh, like every month, you know, they'll like do a batch of episodes. And I like, right. I jumped back on. I was like, oh, I'm, right. cool. I'm cool again. I'm cool <laughs> again. But it's like that, that, like, I, you know, as we go through this journey of aging, it's like, oh, that's right. Like, my generational context is different. My, to go back to pal- my palette of experience is different, all, all these sorts of things. But I can still relate on some cultural human level to, what's going on for you. Like teenagers or teenagers or teenagers, I don't care what is happening to them. Like you can on some, you know, you can relate on some way.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's, it's like, it's always that tension between life stage and generation, right? Like we, we like to, yeah. we, we think there's like a boomer in Gen X and there is some differences, but right. It's also life stage, right? It's like when you're 50, right. when you're 75, when you're 16, like there's life stage stuff that we're, we're going to hit no matter what. That's right. Um, so I think it's an important part of that. But I think that like um, just to, like even to your broader question in general about like that generation to age or these very subtle borders uh, I think is super important, especially, and it's going to become more relevant, I think in the American context and in the world too, just one, birth rates are declining and, and yep. we now have like the largest population ever over 65 mm-hmm. yep. um, and life expectancy is continuing to increase. And so there's this really interesting space that, um, you know, I, I, I contemplate, you know, in, you know, as an anthropologist, but thinking in, in, in a design sense too, it's like, how do we design for the, the next age of life, which is, you know, now going to be 65 and 75 plus, um, this fourth age that we just have never really designed for um, or thought about. And like, you know, um, some of the more sci fi y things that come out of the work I do in doing cultural research is, you know, we'll see people talking about, um, you know, having uh, remote. Ovens that you can turn off that you can like check for your parent, you know, so that way like they can make Mm -hmm. sure that they forget to turn it off. You can turn it off from your phone. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, having assisted fall devices, which you've had for a while, but it's even just contemplating, you know, what does safety mean? What does mobility mean? Um, But I mean, the flip side too, as um, this declining birth rate is such an interesting piece of this conversation too, because younger people are not having kids as often because it's expensive and the world is crazy um, for Mm -hmm. various other reasons. And so, I don't know. I mean, like, so I guess, and I have 4,400 questions, but just like, how do we think about this, this idea of like what direction? Cause one, it is important to think like, you know, how do we design for this new fourth age? But then at the same time, how do we, you know, there's, there is a question also around like, what is the next generation if, if there's fewer of us, which the earth could definitely use fewer people, it seems on some level, but um, you know, separate issue, but just like, you know, how do we, how do we contemplate these two things of like, there's more of us that are older. There's fewer of us that are younger. Um, what does that mean for, for design and how we're like, shaping experiences?
1: I'd be happy with yeah. bigger print. I mean, it could, so I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm playing this dumb game today, Prisoner Architect, when I was streaming. I'm like, who, who made the print like literally less than a font? <laughs> I can't read this. Why do you hate me so much? What did I ever do to you that you're producing right. font that I literally, with glasses on, which are progressives, I admit right. it. I can't even begin to see. Right. Just so wanted to it, buy your game. So I have a very good, very practical design recommendation. Just make the font bigger. Can we just get? If we sure. can just do that, I'm, I'm, I'm halfway there.
2: But but even even like- in pulling, but even in pulling in <laughs> that thread, Gary, like what I always what I always like to do is just unravel that, right? So that means that there was a team of either my generation of millennials or younger that designed a whole game, tested it with a bunch of people. And didn't really ever ask the question like,
0: "Can my grandpa read it? Can
2: can older, can older folks with readers read this font?" That would never came up in any of never. They just like, but it's
1: yeah. They did everything else except for can is this thing like even readable or not? And 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 I, and I know and I know one of them is going to be <laughs> listening to this because you know of course uh, we were so popular they're going to go well all you got to do is go into the options and unlock that one piece where it will show you sure. that if you go through that menu five different layers you can actually you know, I I, I I guarantee it no. but going back to something Don Norman you know reading Don Norman's work is saying you know you know don't blame the user for failures of design. <laughs> You know, so don't blame the old guy for going, why does my VCR keep blinking 12? Kids, VCR, Google that. It was an old technology we used to use to record shows.
2: It's really cool, actually. It's a physical (laughs) magnetic tape that you would insert into a box. It's bonkers, actually, when you think about it. Uh, And you can preserve
1: it by (laughs) picking off a plastic tab. (laughs) Well, I did a whole stream where I was talking about a floppy disk where we used to <laughs> save the floppy disk by cutting a notch with scissors into yeah, the plastic. Sure. And then you would just make it, you could ride over it by just taking some tape and putting it back over that notch you would cut. They're yeah. like, what kind of voodoo is this? I'm like, it was a magical time.
0: The
2: intersection of analog and digital. Um, <laughs> but yeah, it's a, uh, it's a very subtle thing where, as you're, as you find yourself surrounded by a bunch of people who are just like you, you have the blind spots of the water, right? The old, the old joke, like this is the water, like I can't see the water. So if you're on a team and everyone looks and is like you, you're gonna have blind spots. Um, that's just like all there is to it. Um, and so I think to that question, Adam is like the best way we as designers can. Prepare ourselves for any uncertainty in the future. I think this is uh one of my things is really just trying to continually surround myself. And it's really hard, um, you know, to kind of look around and be like, uh, you know, even in this conversation, we're all like, I don't know your backgrounds. I'm Italian American, but we're all like kind of straight-ish white dudes, I guess. Um, you know, I'm making wild assumptions. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's really tough to find yourself in a room at a team or anything like that where you're like, oh, I look around and not everyone looks like me. Um, and that's going to actually give, if we think of it in terms of biological advantage, any biological system that has more diversity or, or something is going to inherently be more resilient no matter what the ecological state is. It's going to have more ability to adapt faster. Um, to any need that is presented, and so if we think of building design teams and and uh, projects that way, you're you're not just doing it because it's morally or ethically or any of these sort of like cognitive or emotional reasons. It's like kind of from a base like biological, physical survivability functionality. It's like this is actually way more resilient than than the opposite uh, yeah. in in the long term.
0: You know, it's like prison architect will do better if you can change the font and more people can read it, right? Then you have a bigger audience. Yes. <laughs> well, it's,
1: it's actually there's a, a very much so. And it makes there's like another example I want to bring with that, but also it raises the question. Should you ever talk? Can we ever talk about, or should we ever talk about experience design without also talking about inclusive design in this at the same right. time? And yeah. you know, I, when I was talking this morning, I was looking. I and mean, one of my favorite news outlets now is—I might be saying it wrong—but is an an online news source called um, Kotaku, which is just about gaming. It has some fascinating stuff about gaming. You know, I'm, I'm coming into gaming about you know 30 years late here, but one of the things I talked about was the the, the rise of the number of female gamers, right? who are one of the things they're looking for, and they did a study across different kinds of national contexts. What are they looking for? And one of the things they're looking for is social relationship. Well, if you're a female gamer, it's hard to go online to find social relationships when you're getting spammed and attacked by a bunch of guys who are, you know, targeting you because you're a woman. And so how do, how do, how do games? And one of the things that women do, one of the studies showed was they don't present as women in their identities online. But Games having to think about if we want to make this, if we want to increase sales, forget about the morality. We just want to increase sales. We got to make this a safe space. How do we do that? It, you know, how do we create experiences that are welcoming and inclusive, going back to the palette thing? So you there is a ramp into this world that isn't just from zero to a hundred, from mild to spicy, so, such so that you're blown out and you never want to go back again.
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And, and when I've worked with game companies in the past, the number one, again, trying to help them see the water, the number one thing that I would sort of point to is like, well, you don't have any women on your team. Right. <laughs> <laughs> like, like just at, at, let's start there because a woman, especially a woman gamer, uh, or pick, pick any, you know, uh, identity is going to be able to have a personal experience of what that is like, um, in that community experiencing those sorts of things? And how do you then design around or, or with those challenges um, to present a situation that's going to kind of, yeah, get more people into that space?
0: You know, it's one thing that strikes me that, that um, my colleague and I were talking about this a while ago, but <clears throat> it's it's interesting how like, for example, the output of a game design is reflective of the diversity or perspectives of the designers of the game. Sure. But then also then that's reflective of their workplace culture and their space. And so one, one piece that I was talking uh, with, a, with a female colleague of mine it was we we're looking at um, the language that different tech companies were using for job descriptions. And what's very interesting, as we know, like tech in general is very, very male-heavy, um, and like yes. and they often struggle to have diversity on teams and getting more women in the space. And one thing that I think that oftentimes they haven't considered is again the language, even like how inviting or exclusive is the language of the applications. And one simple example uh, was was saying, you know, on this for. Yeah, I don't remember what the job was, but, you know, at a tech company, it was just like, we're looking for a rock star, someone that's aggressive that'll get out there and like really, you know, essentially take the bull by the horns. And like this is very male masculine, you know, in this like yeah. not ideal kind of masculine language was how they were describing the position. And it was just like, I that we laugh because it's like blatant to us, but then it's interesting that like the person that wrote that had never even thought, Oh wait, like we want a rock star. It's like, that's going to attract one kind of person, you know? Yeah. And so even how how we like design from that level too. Like, I mean, to your to your point up at top, that's super, I think, right on to is that words make such a difference of like both how we frame experiences and then what we have from them. And so I think one of the great challenges we we have in the design space is to to get people to think in, in a bigger inclusive language, right? Um, and like this is that's just one simple example of that. But like that uh, that idea, it's it's both, yes, literally having more diversity around you is is fundamental. Mm-hmm. Um but then, like noticing the subtle ways that changes, like in the kind of language that you use, right? And so, I, I always contemplate, you know, how how do we design things in like in changing the language the other way around, right? And so that way, it, like invites more inclusivity, like even if it subtly shifts the way people are thinking about something. Because one of the other the the I think big challenges like that we're facing socially as we are. You know, finally beginning to recognize a society with so much of our diversity issues and endemic racism and sexism and genderism is that so much of the DEI, diversity and inclusion language, is super high level and academic. Right. And an average person doesn't know intersectionality is a scary word, right? And it's like, what does that even mean? So um, it's, it's a piece that in general that I, that I also kind of struggle with. I'm curious with both your thoughts too of like, how do we, how can we think about language as a way that like is both. The thing we need to communicate, the imperativeness of diversity, but at the same time, using words and phrases and and setting up the structures of grammar so that we can then make that a possibility.
2: Well, I'll kind of take that thread and kind of tie it back into what we're kind of starting with where maybe this is one of the core reasons why we're talking is that that piece around curiosity, right? So for me, so much of the past few years of my work has uh, there were a few projects that I was working on something that was DEI specific. And in those conversations, we were applying human centered design and design thinking frameworks and methodologies and all this sort of stuff. Like how are we going to redesign the employee experience and blah, you know all these sorts of things. And what I kept noticing time and time again, is that there is a fundamental kind of gap between actually being able to apply that stuff. Cause as we were maybe joking earlier, like human centered design just starts with the very basic premise of like, let's just ask people.
1: <laughs> right.
2: <laughs> like, what? wow. Let's, like, Seriously? let's just ask people. Let's just ask people. Right. <sighs> and so, and so the fact that I was witnessing uh, leaders who for the most part are generally white men um, not being able to like, we're like, well, we don't need to do that. Let's just, bypass that step. That step's not really necessary. Let's just get to the answer at the end and and fix the machine, right? right? And as we know, culture is not a machine. It's this organic, this beautiful growing thing that no one person is a thing. A community and a constellation is, is a bunch of individuals, but a culture grows beyond time. It's not one generation. So it's something that's a lot more subtle that you have to work with. And so curiosity for me was was how I found that I could get people to take that initial step, and and getting them to realize that it's not in the answer that it's actually in the muscle of asking the questions. Right. So that like we're going back to that joke around no one at the game company was like, well, what about this? Like, what if what if we tested this? So just like keep asking the question of like well, what about this? And that's going to only kind of just make the thing stronger and stronger. So curiosity is this way that I found to get designers, also the experiencers of experience to expand that palette, begin to like ask questions um, and kind of move into a space that they can apply those design thinking principles with rigor and not get lost in the mechanization of kind of the prior mode of thinking because their their fundamental motive of operating is it is literally the problem and it's also the water it's what they don't understand that right. they're doing um to to stop doing that essentially
1: yeah i, I really like that because it makes me think you know some of this other thread that we've been talking about is how not to get overwhelmed by the experience and and for companies you know i've done i do dei work i was part of a team that created a new dei major at my school one of the first ones that mm-hmm. exists and you know one of the things that when you talk to companies about all of these things they have to consider all you know five senses right the subtleties of light the language that you use the artifacts in the space all of these things that matter they get freaked out because they're like i don't want to deal with that because i actually have my other job i need to do Yep. And so especially around middle management like, I don't, you know, like how do I manage this now as well? It feels overwhelming. So I guess one of the questions for you in your own work is how do you, how do you handhold them or how do you, you know, tell them it's going to be okay. How do you bring them along to not be overwhelmed by the seeming complexity to provide a pathway to action that seems manageable, tangible makes sense. And it's practical for those who, have a different sensibility about what it means to, you know, to do things in a work environment.
2: Yeah. Well, I think for me, uh, overwhelm is such a, uh, it is not a unique experience. I, I believe that a lot of people working in the capitalist systems and companies and things like that experience the stress of overwhelm at any given time. Cause it's almost like as soon as they look up from their daily task or their weekly task, it just feels like there's this, this right. giant mountain. So what I, what I really believe in, in terms of kind of building that curiosity muscle is to, to not focus too much on the overwhelm because it's like that, then you're adding to that pile, so to speak. It's like, how do you bring, and this maybe ties back to our original thread of that, like, memory versus the momentary experience. Is like, how do you bring people into the immediate thing right here and now that, you know what, maybe this, like, asking these questions isn't necessarily going to solve this giant overwhelming problem in this meeting. But what you're going to do is is, to your point that we've talked about before, these micro... Moments, these m- micro conversations, these micro gestures, uh, asking someone a different question, like is going to change the tone of the meeting. And then that meeting's going to change the tone of the week. And then the ch- tone of the week is going to change the tone of the month. And so you're, you're, you're trying to just focus on moment to moment sort of change uh, in both the way that you're experiencing your work, the way in which your team is experiencing their work, Uh, because that's going to build the resilience over time to be able to like actually begin to untangle this larger thing. Um, but, but what I really try to ground in is the, is the metaphor of building the strength, because if you, if, if you just walked into my gym and I showed you like someone who could bench like 400 pounds or whatever, and as analogous to that, you would be freaked out. You'd be like, there's no way I can do that. But if we just start with just like a little bit of weights we're just gonna do this like five 10 minutes a day and then you're like oh you know next time I went to like grab a carton of milk it felt lighter and then we're gonna just do that for a week and then you know in a month we're gonna do a little bit more and then over time we're gonna to get to the point where the the heavier thing doesn't feel as heavy as it used to but it's going to be a muscle that needs to be built over time and that's the difference in embodied learning versus cognitive or intellectual learning. We can just pull in an idea and then process from there but we forget that deeper levels of design work at this higher systems level also requires a, a capacity for thinking that's different than what we've been trained to do. It's a type of thinking that requires asking questions, not just reinterpreting information and spitting out an answer. Um, and that sort of critical thinking thing is a, is a muscle that if it's Mm. not if it's just been sitting and atrophying for years, is going to take some time to turn back online. Like you were saying, most people, as soon as they enter education to bring it back to public schools, that is oftentimes like just squashed completely.
1: Yeah, i meant to that because one of the things that um, I often ask when I'm doing a, a you know some kind of exec ed thing or just teaching grad students who are working, how many of your organizations have uh, professional development programs on critical thinking? Zero. <laughs> I mean, it's, it's remarkable, you know, that, and it's scary Mm. that there's, I mean, it creates a great opportunity, but there's like no in what's more fundamentally scary is that people don't necessarily think they need it. Yeah. You know, um, as well. So you're,
2: well, I was going to say, I mean, you're, you're in education. It's like, let's also look at a systems level thing. Like the institution of education is hundreds of years old And it makes sense at a time when let's go back to when there wasn't machines to do the longhand stats stuff, you know? So it made sense why certain ways in which we created educational curriculum was a certain way, because there there was some amount of like, we need to retain answers or there needs to be knowledge holders. But now that we've created technology that takes that out of this thing, we're still conditioning minds to operate that way, which is not a very beneficial thing to the overall system because we're kind of duplicating the work that machines are already kind of doing to just be another cog. And we need that sort of, like you said, that critical thinking asking these larger systems levels questions and using the tools that we've created to process that information to not just be, you know, I think the biggest thing I do when I coach people or train people, in in organizations when I'm working with leaders is that fundamental shift between believing at some point they they inherited a belief or or were educated into a belief that they have to have the right answer. And it's fundamental shifting that to realizing that they just have to keep asking better questions and that the answer actually changes over time. In any given moment, the answer that's going to be a solution now might not be the same answer when we, when we check it in five years, it's going to be a completely different scenario. Who knows about climate change? Who knows about this generation? Who knows about whatever, you know? So you got to keep asking questions and doing that work. Cause the answer, we have the machines to process that information. It's, it's as, as a designer, as a leader, as a, whatever, you don't need to have the answer. You need to be asking and, and promoting the, the question. answer. that's where curiosity comes in for me.
0: I like that. that that's, that's super cool. And I think that, <clears throat> It's such a fundamentally important piece is how do we you know revoke or remove that idea that like I have to have the answer I have to have that this it's and and there is some concrete answer right and, and so it's interesting too because again this is still one of the the capacity for curiosity and and our you know human intuition is something that the machines also don't have and that's why our value continues to be um, yes. you know imperative even as we automate different tasks and different pieces um, and so part of it I think and it seems like your work is is keyed in on this idea too, is that how do we, we have to elevate leadership's thinking and framework about um, where value actually lies, right? And it isn't how fast necessarily I can do XYZ task, but more about, can I ask better questions about how and why the task is even being done this way? Um, You know, it's interesting because there's like, there's, you know, a lot of workplace studies that show that when people have a sense of autonomy that they can make decisions. You know, they can, they can have a framework. They can have to make decisions within a certain context. That's fine. They're not just doing carte blanche, but when folks are able to retain a sense of autonomy, they actually will tend to then be more creative because they said, I got to figure this out right. versus just saying, Hey, you should just do it like this. And, um, yeah. also it's, 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 I think something else about this piece too. It's like, we have to, we have to also instill, I think in leaders, like we have to trust the, the folks that work with us, right. That we work with and that, like they, they can be owners of their own process. Um, and that's a piece of machine thinking we have to get I think leaders to to back away from, right that I own the process
1: well, I think that's uh Adam, might have the last word
0: Damn. dangerous
1: I know right that never happens. <laughs> <laughs> only when people no longer want to talk to them, they just walk away that,
0: that's that's yeah they, they just walk away it's like okay, we're done here,
1: but that's a different kind of last word. <laughs> <laughs> No, I, th- I think you know, a lot of these sentiments are exactly spot on. It's, you know, it's, you know, just kind of round things out. It's this idea of going back to generations, having those different perspectives, having more inclusivity is going to lead to different questions because people are going to yeah. have different points of view, which is going to lead to a richer design opportunity. If we're willing to listen to what people have to say, and which is yeah. going to lead to not just transformation in the, Contemporary sense of you know experiences immediately transform us, but also longer term transformation, which hopefully is sustainable over time, and not just that magical memory, but that longer term evolution.
0: I'll just tag and say I think that curiosity is evolution.
1: So, is that the I get the last word? Should we get Anthony should have the last
0: word? Yeah, Anthony should um. have the last <laughs> word last words there is
2: no last words like the, the end we'll, we'll, we'll do this the, the end uh, all, to be
1: continued all the Russian words for blue go,
2: <laughs> all, go. All the, um yeah the the thing that I always try to instill in people and I think you'll really appreciate this as cultural anthropologists and and that thing is that the The amount of evolution that has happened in terms of our technology or culture or society or however you want to label it, in the last hundred or so years, it still has, we have not fundamentally changed as like creatures, as like tribal animals. And so there is something in my work that I try to really communicate to people that this timeless quality of what it means to be embodied humans, um, and sharing life, like no matter what happens, like there's going to be these kind of core things. I think to your point, curiosity is, is one of those pieces that I, I really feel and believe that we can go far, far, far back. And there's still questions and, and, looking up at the night sky and wondering what the stars are and having speculation about it. And even now I can scientifically explain that they're giant balls of exploding hydrogen that are mass and scale. That is, I can't even comprehend. And, and that doesn't, that doesn't satisfy my curiosity. It's still just like mind blowing that that's even happening. And so I, I think really focusing on like the, that that innate human ability and that it's very innate everyone I believe really as a child we're we're animals who are meant to be curious this is this is part of how we evolved to to kind of have uh, the way in which we became human so there's this thing of just returning to that and going like oh I remember how to ride this bike and this isn't just it's not just a a thing for fun, although we can be playful about it, it can have great power in changing the way in which our lives are individually and at a larger level, the system. Um, and so I'll leave it there with that.
1: It's a, it's <laughs> the a, end. That sounds like a great place wow. to leave it. <laughs> yeah. I <awesome. laughs> really appreciate taking that time, Anthony, to chat with us today. This is great to explore these wherever we went.
2: Yeah. You too, Adam, Gary. Yeah. Uh, no, thank you for having me on. It was absolutely a delight getting to explore the threads. Um, I love the, the stream of consciousness of it. It was very, very delightful. So thank you for the experience.
0: We'd like to thank Anthony Rocco for joining us today. And you can check out his training project, Architecting Curiosity, linked in the show notes below. As well, we'd love to know your thoughts on how could we design experiences more intentionally? Do you think about curiosity as an aspect of your own experience design? Shoot us a message over at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. We'd love to get in conversation with you.
1: We also want to thank you for continuing to support the podcast. We appreciate all your contributions, whether they be uh, your your comments, your sentiments, your sharing, your finances. We appreciate all of those things, uh, as well as when you share your ideas and everything that you contribute makes this podcast possible. You can continue to support our podcast by going to our website, experiencexdesign.com, by going to our LinkedIn page, as well as now through Buy Me a Coffee. You can head over to our website to find our link to Buy Me a Coffee, where you can buy us a coffee and continue to allow us to bring this content to you. And as always, share your feedback at feedback at experiencexdesign.com. If you want to subscribe, go over to our website, just Type in your email to stay up to date on all the Experience by Design news and make sure that you continue to be part of that conversation. And with that, we hope you are well, hope you are safe, hope you are happy, and we will see you next time on Experience by Design.